So when we come on a retreat like this, we leave home, we leave what's um, familiar, we leave, we leave our families, we leave our usual distractions, we leave our hobbies and things like that, so that we can uh, come to a place of seclusion. And we call this retreat center a place of seclusion because it's secluded from the busyness, the activities, the uh, hustle and bustle of your domestic life, your professional life, your social life. And we do that not just because there's something wrong with that, but to give us an opportunity to experience our life from a different perspective, from a place of seclusion, being unstimulated, un uh, enticed, un uh, impacted by the onslaught of activity and noise and uh, opportunities that our life is full of. Uh, and to come to a place of physical seclusion so that we can, in common language, just unwind, let go, settle in, calm down, uh, get grounded, uh, wake up, uh, chill, however you, however you want to think about it. It's just stepping out of the stream of activity that is our life. Uh, not because we're trying to avoid it, not because there's necessarily anything wrong with it, but because, like a fish in water, uh, sometimes we forget, we don't even notice the impact of what's going on in our life. We just don't even notice how we're so immersed in the ordinariness of our life and we don't know uh, how to live without it, actually. And so when we come to a place like this, while it only takes a couple hours to drive here or half a day to fly here and your body is here, now, in the room, uh, you'll discover that the mind will arrive in a couple of days. Uh, you know a lot of our mind is entangled in the to-do list that we left at work and the relationships that we left at home and a lot of our mind's activity first day or two can be fully preoccupied with life away from here and so we would say at that time that the mind is not secluded yet the body is secluded here in this physical place, but the mind is not secluded. The mind is still out there and entangled and engaged and being drawn and pulled out. And so it takes it takes a while for the mind to become secluded also, meaning the mind comes home. We, 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 we come into our mind. We become attuned to our mind here, in this present moment. So, just as a a cautionary uh, suggestion, just know that it takes a while. It just takes a while. You just can't start the first day of a retreat 
like you've left the last day of your last retreat. You just can't. You know, and it takes time. So, that's an encouragement to be patient. To really be patient with the restlessness of your mind, the aching of the body, the, you know, the distractibility, the impulsivity that you feel in the body, in the mind, and you'll get here. You'll get here eventually. Uh, and it's not by forcing yourself, it's not by gritting your teeth or anything, it's just by relaxing. You know, this in, in this time and place you have full permission to relax. Relax the body, relax the mind, let go, get here, be here, uh, see what it's like to actually arrive here. Meaning, be awake, be aware, pay attention. And one of the ways that we encourage a redirecting of our energy being here is to take these, what are called the refuges and the precepts kind of traditional in uh, this practice uh, and from where this practice came from in Burma and Thailand, places like that. It's traditional to take the refuges and precepts as a way of reminding ourselves that we've left home, we've left work, we've left the busyness of our life, and we're turning our heart and mind in a different direction, inward, rather than outward. So much of our life is directed outside of ourselves, out of necessity. But here we have an opportunity to to come into ourselves, and we do that by taking the refuges and precepts. And even though we we come from many different we all have our own homes and jobs and we live all around the country and we come here for a common purpose to wake up, to become aware, to um, come into ourselves, to come home to ourselves. And it takes some uh, um, support, it takes a lot of support. We support each other. We come here together so that we have the support of each other. And uh, it takes a few days to kind of acknowledge that we're a group and to feel safe in this group, to really, even though you don't know each other, you'll see within a few days you'll know each other. You'll know a lot about each other, not because you're talking, but by your observation of the commitment that we all bring to being here and the sincerity with which we practice and the alignment of our efforts by taking the refuges and precepts. So it's important that we understand what the refuges and precepts are and why we begin uh, a retreat like this by taking them. Many of you have been practicing some form of meditation or some spiritual practice for years, decades. Uh, 
different tradition to practice, not all Buddhist even, and that's fine. All spiritual practices have something to offer. All Buddhist traditions, all different teachers have something to offer. And in the course of our personal development or in the course of our own journey of awakening, any and all of these practices can be and probably will be uh, skillful, skillful means at some time in our life. But for this period of time, I'll be offering uh, the teachings that I have learned from primarily two different uh, Burmese meditative traditions. The tradition of Mahasi Sayadaw, uh, a well-known Burmese monk of the last century, uh, who was something of a revolutionary in the meditation field because he he had a way of teaching meditation following the Buddha's instructions to lay people, householders like ourselves. Uh, and it was very popular. Uh, it seemed to work for a lot of people and became quite well known and hundreds of meditation centers were established in his tradition and it is that tradition of practice which has been one of the major influences in the transmission of the teachings of the Buddha uh, from the Theravada tradition in in the West and primarily uh, for the kind of retreats that we hold like this influenced by his teaching. So we have a lot of uh, indebtedness to Mahasi Sayadaw, even if you've never heard of him. Uh, mm, a lot of what we'll be doing here this week is directly influenced by him. And then the other uh, meditative Burmese teacher and teachings that I'll be sharing is from Sayadaw Utejaniya, who is a contemporary uh, Buddhist monk in Burma who teaches uh, a kind of mindfulness practice and an insight practice that is, I feel, particularly suited for we Western householders who are busy, have uh, very active lives, think a lot solve a lot of problems, uh, aren't going to, for the most part, aren't going to uh, ordain as monks or nuns for extended periods of time, maybe short periods of time. Uh, But he teaches the way of being aware of our life in the busyness, in the fullness of our uh, westernized lifestyle. And uh, his teaching also seems to be quite effective and becoming quite popular also. So I think that uh, in sharing those two traditions of practice uh, and my experiences with it, then uh, be something of interest to you. 
That's not to say that your other practices, whether uh, Buddhist or not, are not useful or skillful. But I would ask that you listen, uh, try, and see for yourself how this, how this, uh, these traditions of practice work for you. Uh, just so that you can have a, uh, an experience and your own uh, empirical evidence of how it works for you. And then you can decide for yourself whether to integrate it into something you do in your life or not. Uh, it's not primarily about reading. It's not primarily be, not primarily about uh, acquiring very much knowledge. It's mostly about practice. There'll be some reading, and there'll be some, a lot of discussion, but it's mostly practice. So, these teachings of both of those uh, traditions comes from the Buddha. And so when we take the refuges and precepts, the first, uh, the first couple lines is paying homage to the Buddha. Now, all of us have heard of the Buddha. Some of us may know something about the Buddha or we may not know anything about the Buddha. But what we acknowledge in this uh, short homage phrase here, homage to the Blessed One, the Perfected One, the Fully Enlightened One, it's to uh, acknowledge where these teachings come from and to have at least some idea of what the Buddha is, or what a Buddha is, or what the Buddha is to us in this situation. Of course, the Buddha was a human being, like us, uh, not uh, some heavenly being or some uh, supernatural being. Uh, he was just he was a human being uh, who woke up to the fullness of what it means to be a human being, to be alive, and to suffer and to realize or to come to understand the end of suffering. Suffering's a big word. And uh, I know when I first started practice, I didn't really, I was young, 25, and you know, when I heard the word suffering, I I didn't know what they were talking about because I didn't suffer. You know, I sat up back in my first retreat two weeks long, leaning against the wall, and the body was in extreme agitation and excruciating pain, and my mind was all over the place, and I couldn't be very mindful, but I wasn't suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, suffering was a word that meant I was a failure. To me, it meant if I was suffering, I was doing something wrong, and I was a failure, so I didn't resonate with it. But, you know, even if we feel some distress, some anxiety, some fear, some agitation, some disappointment, anger, irritation, unfulfilled desires, envy, jealousy, impatience, that's suffering. And so we all uh, can acknowledge that, that there's some level of uh, distress in our lives. Well, the Buddha is one who recognize suffering and want us to understand why, how it happens, 
and how to be free of it. All those things that I just said that we all experience at different times in our life, the Buddha, the Buddha's journey of awakening was to discover, to realize why he suffered and to be free of that, how to be free of that. Now, most of us don't even, might not even think it's even realistic to think that somehow we're going to eradicate impatience, anger, irritation, impatience, frustration, disappointment, despair, fear from our lives. I mean, do you? <laughs> do you think, oh yeah, that'd be a good thing to do. Yeah, it'd be a good thing to do, but is it possible? Well, we don't know, do we? But the Buddha found out. So the Buddha is not just your ordinary uh, human being. He's a human being, but not ordinary. In some ways, he's kind of like super-ordinary. So when we come to a retreat like this, and we know we're going to be hearing the teachings of the Buddha as best as I can convey them and point to those teachings, please understand, it's not my... It's not my it's not my realization. I've been practicing and trying to understand and have some realization, but it's the Buddha's realization. And so we can think of it that, oh, here's someone who's really done the work and then offered the teachings that point to how we can do the work. So we pay respect and maybe gratitude and acknowledgement to a teacher like that. And even though the Buddha isn't here now uh, in, in the human form, the teachings are still available. And that's pretty amazing because the Buddha lived more than 2,500 years ago. Now, I don't know what else you remember from 2,500 years ago or what else you've been uh, participating in or consuming in your life from 2,500 years ago, but not much. So we have these teachings of the Buddha that have been carried to us by a long line of men, women, monks, nuns, other beings of all sorts to bring these teachings to us. So when we pay homage to the Buddha, we're, we're acknowledging, here's someone special, still human being, that had some extraordinary capacity to understand the way of suffering and the end of suffering. And so they call him the Blessed One, meaning one whose life is blessed, one who's really fulfilled, in some ways, the fullness of the human life. And they call him the Perfected One. And Perfected One, in, the, in this sense, means here we have, these, we have these qualities in our own heart, as you know, uh, we have the qualities of uh, anger, and we have the qualities of love. So if we if we can see the the lack the, the unskillfulness of anger, and we can understand the benefit of love, then we try to move our life in that direction. And where, as we get better at it, uh, we we experience and act out less anger and we experience and act out more love. And when we can do that perfectly, then we'd be the perfected one. 
That's what the Buddha did. So the Buddha is one who recognized the skillful qualities of our heart that we, too, know, and the unskillful qualities, and he kind of perfected the way he lived, meaning he was, he, he, he uh, developed the skillful qualities of the heart and mind to be the default setting of his, of his mind, meaning that's where his mind went in every situation to generosity, to understanding, to patience, to uh, letting go, to compassion, to love, to sharing, rather than feeling anxious, fearful, afraid, greedy, attached, impatient. So, we say, wow, he was perfect in that sense. This is not unhuman. This is just being a good human being. And we all have that same potential within us, don't we? You know, we all know what the danger and the unskillful, unskillfulness of being angry, irritated, impatient, frustrated, disappointed, greedy, right? We all know that. And we all know the benefit of being kind, compassionate, understanding, patient, loving, right? There's room for improvement, right? That means not yet perfect, right? But Buddha is one of the perfect. So even though we can't imagine really what that is, we know the direction to go. And so we can say, well, you know, if you work at it long enough, or if you really deeply understand and you're really committed, then you'll get closer to perfection. So when we honor the Buddha, we're honoring the capability of developing this wholesome this wholesome mind. And then it says the fully enlightened one. Actually, Samasambuddha doesn't mean exactly that. Samasambuddha is one who uh, purified their mind without having uh, any guidance or teachers to lead them how to do it. Now imagine, some of you have been doing meditation practice for a while, Imagine you just sit down one day, you look at your mind and you see the, the mess that it is and you just sit there until you figure out how to disentangle it and stop suffering. No instruction. Imagine that. How, where would you even begin? Really? I mean, you know, I've been at it for a while and some of you have too. You know, but I have a lot of instruction a lot of different teachers, a lot of guidance, a lot of explanation, a lot of books, a lot of practice. You know, far more than that 10,000 hours that they say you need to become an Olympic Olympian in some sports. Far more than that. And I'm, not, I'm no Olympian meditator, believe me. <laughs> but, it's possible. I see. We can move in that direction. But here's someone who was self-awakened, meaning he never heard the teachings of the Buddha. And he found it, found the truth, or realized the truth on his own. That's what makes him a Buddha, not just an ordinary, fully enlightened being, whatever that is, but someone who's able to train the mind to realize for himself. So this makes the, the Buddha even more than supernormal, 
superhuman, but still human. So when we pay homage to the Buddha, we're paying homage to the teacher uh, that can offer us this guidance, even the potential, even the point to the possibility that we can also uh, cultivate the skillful qualities of our heart and mind, grow in understanding, and disentangle our heart and mind from suffering. So, I'm more than happy to say thank you very much to the Buddha. You know, <coughs> pay homage to the Buddha. It's like I really appreciate, I have a lot of gratitude for, and uh, even though I can't fully recognize all the qualities of the Buddha, I have some glimpse of how far I, <laughs> how far I have to go. But I'm glad that he's around. I'm glad that he was around. I'm glad that the teachings are around. I'm glad that there are teachers around that can share the teachings of the Buddha because I wouldn't know where to begin. Really, I just wouldn't know. Okay? So that's what we're, we're doing when we when we chant the homage to the Buddha. We're saying, wow, cool, thanks a lot. Save me some few hundred lifetimes. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Something like that. I don't mean to make light of it, but it's like, it's almost more than you can think about, right? So that's the homage to Buddha. Secondly, we take refuge. What's called taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Now I mentioned that when we come to this place of physical seclusion, this retreat center, we come to a place of refuge, a place away from the busyness, the distractions, the the fear and anxiety and stress uh, that we experience in our life, then we come to a physical place of safety. We could say this place is a refuge. Refuge for <coughs> feeling safe, feeling at ease, feeling comfortable, not feeling uh, like we have to be on guard or hyper-vigilant all the time. We can relax and feel safe about that. So when we come here, you know, we get the opportunity to feel, you know, eventually to feel safe. And we feel safe when we can learn to be here. And what's that mean, really, to be here? You know, the body's here, as I said, but the mind's not here yet. And to take refuge in the Buddha <coughs> means to find a place of safety, to uh, understand that the Buddha offers a sense of safety to us, the, the, the actual Buddha of 2,500 years ago, offering teachings that uh, can offer a way of understanding our life where we'll feel safe. Of course, the Buddha is not here to kind of protect us from whatever threats or dangers we might feel or sense or anticipate or fear. And in our lives, we we have acquired a lot of skills, a lot of material goods, a lot of uh, resources, try to feel safe in our life. 
You know, we take refuge in our career. We take refuge in our home. We take refuge in our family. We take refuge in our credit card balance or limit, credit limit. We take refuge in our car. We take refuge in our... I was going to say political leaders, but I don't want to go there. (laughs) Some political leaders. (laughs) Just in case. You know, and and we do. We, we, We look to these experiences, to these things, to these ways of being in the world for a sense of safety. Don't we? If you didn't have a job, you didn't have a car, you didn't have a family, you didn't have a home, it'd be hard to feel safe. Right? We take, that's what we take refuge in. We feel safe there. We feel, you know, somewhat safe. And for all that we've acquired, we do pretty good. And yet, we still feel anxious. We still feel fearful at times. We still feel threatened. We sometimes feel that we still, with all that, we still are hypervigilant in our life. Because there are some places in the heart, some places in the mind, that money, others, relationships, homes, cars, jobs, can't offer a sense of safety. So we have those places in our heart, don't we? You know, you can be sometimes home and home and family and money doesn't do it. You know, there are conditions in life that aren't touched. Whether it's existential angst and fear, whether it's uh, just dread of what-ifs that kind of run through the mind. What is going to offer you a sense of safety, a sense of refuge, a place of ease, when your mind is caught in that kind of space. So we think of the Buddha. Now here's the person. He found a he found a place of refuge in his own mind. He's teaching us how to do that for ourselves. We can take a refuge in him as a human being, uh, to the extent that we hear his teachings, uh, find them of value to us, practice them. Uh, we may also find a refuge within ourselves. Because the quality of a Buddha is one who's awake. And we have that potential within ourselves. We do. Each one of us. I don't mean you have to try to become a Buddha. I don't mean that. But we can be awake. We can be awake to our experience, can't we? We can be awake to our fears. We can be awake to our anxiety. We can be awake to our sense of security. We can be awake to our love. We can be awake to our companions. We can be awake, you know, meaning we can acknowledge, we can be aware, we can feel connected to. And this wakefulness can become a refuge. Even, I don't just mean when we're awake to love and peace and a sense of abundance. I mean, even when we are in, well, what might normally be threatening, fearful, dangerous situations, we can have a sense of wakefulness and feel quite at ease with that. Because we have this potential within ourselves to be awake. But we don't always take that, do we? Sometimes what we experience in our own heart 
doesn't feel safe. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, we're saying something like, I aspire to be able to find a refuge in my own heart. Even if I can't yet, I am, I am aspiring to. So, taking refuge in the Buddha doesn't mean, yeah, I, I feel totally safe. There. Okay. Let it come. Whatever it is. You know. No, we're not saying that. We're just saying, I know there's this place in, our, in my heart. Like the Buddha realized. And even though I may not be there yet, I aspire to find that place. I aspire to be able to be at ease and feel safe with everything that arises in my heart. Everything. That's quite an aspiration, isn't it? Imagine. No matter what arises in your heart and mind, you feel safe. You feel at ease. You feel grounded. You feel responsive. Not yet realized, but certainly looks like something to aspire to. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, that's what we're doing. We're taking refuge in the potential within our own heart to find a place of ease and refuge at all times. This is not a weekend endeavor. You know, this is this is a long haul, or potentially a long haul. But even if we get a taste of it, what the potential is in our own heart to, to bear with uh, the difficulties, the challenges, the the pain, the suffering of life, and we get a taste of that, that's enough. That encourages us to continue. The other thing that, about the Buddha to remember is that after his awakening to the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering, He considered what to do. You know, he was 35. He'd been kind of torturing himself for six years of severe practices. Finally woke up to the truth. And he considered what to do with his life, the rest of his life. You know, and he thought about just kind of retiring to the Himalayas over there and then he just kind of living out the rest of his life in bliss. The bliss of not suffering. But he was prevailed upon by some other beings to share what he had learned. And so he looked around the world with the the power of his mind. He looked around the world and he saw how much people were suffering. And how much, if they could understand what he was saying or what he realized, how much they would stop suffering. So it was out of compassion for the suffering of others that the Buddha decided to teach. Thank you very much. You know, because if he didn't teach, he can he can he can do his own work, he can free his own heart and mind, he can be free of suffering. But if he doesn't teach, it doesn't help us. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in his compassion. Knowing that his teaching is an act of compassion for us. Okay. Now sometimes in the course of our practice, we come, we hear the instructions, we sit down, we practice, and we find all kinds of pain and suffering 
and we think, this meditation is causing me all this distress, all this pain, all this suffering. Why should I do that? You know, you probably have had that thought. You know, this sitting makes me feel, makes my body uncomfortable. Makes me see all kinds of stuff in my mind I'd rather not see. It's painful. Right? We know. Yeah, but you know, the meditation awareness doesn't make the pain. It reveals the pain. It's already there. The nature of the body is painful. And there's stuff in the mind that's painful. We keep ourselves busy, we keep ourselves distracted, we keep ourselves in denial, avoidance, minimizing. We do all kinds of things to not see it. But the Buddha, out of compassion for our suffering, encourages us to take a look. It's there, it's suffering. But when you open to it, you understand it, it's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering, rather than the suffering that leads to more suffering. You know, I've, I've used this image before, and some of you may have heard it. You know, if, if I asked you to squeeze your hand into a fist, and keep squeezing, and you squeeze, and you squeeze, and after three or four minutes, wow, it starts to feel like a rock, feels crampy and hard and achy, and after five minutes, it's kind of numb, and after eight minutes, you don't feel anything. Your mind is, your, your hand is still just grasped tightly, but you don't feel anything. And if you walked around like that till the end of the retreat, you know, and then at the last day of the retreat, I said, hey, what, what, what are you holding on to? You say, I, I, I don't know, I don't know. And you try to open your fist to release what you're holding on to. Ooh. As soon as you try to let go, all that numbness, all that pain, all that ache comes back, doesn't it? You start to be aware, oh, I can't, I can't open my hand, it's, it's so cramped, it's so achy, it's so numb, it's, it, yeah. And, but gradually, if you can endure that and you keep trying, gradually you can open your fist, okay? It's very painful to do that. But actually, after you open your fist and your hand is open and, and free and flexible, no more pain. To grab on to something and go numb is suffering that leads to more suffering. To learn, to be encouraged to open your fist and to let go is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So what we're doing here, following the Buddha's teaching, is paying attention to this numbness in our hearts, this numbness in our bodies this lack of awareness of what this body is all about and not knowing our own heart and mind. And as we pay attention to it, we see, whoa, it's numb. It's achy. It hurts. It's painful. It's all kinds of, you know, distressing feelings. But as we become aware and we open the heart, we open the mind and we learn to let go, then we suffer, but we suffer in a way that leads to the end of suffering. Meditation, the awareness, the awakening, doesn't cause that suffering. It exposes that suffering. And if once we are uh, aware of it, and we can let go, then we come to the end of suffering. <clears throat> so that's why we practice. So the pain that you will discover in your body, and the pain that you may discover in your heart, 
in your mind during this retreat is not bad. It's not harmful. It's the cost, it's the price of awakening. It's, it's the journey of awakening. It's, it's what we go through to learn how to let go and what it is we've got to let go of. So don't, don't, don't beat yourself up if you feel pain. Whether it's emotional pain or existential pain or physical pain, know that you're uncovering the truth, the nature, the way it is in this human body, in this human life. And you're learning how to let go. You're learning where the pain is in your life and you're learning how to let go. So you have to have, have like the Buddha, you want to have compassion for yourself. We're going to suffer. <laughs> We're going to suffer. I guarantee. I mean, I'm not telling you you have to. I'm just telling you it will happen. <laughs> I don't need to tell you. You all know that anyway. But I want you to feel like, oh, this is an act of compassion for yourself. Really. To bear with the distress of the body and the, the discomfort of the mind. It's having compassion for yourself. You might not think so. You think you're like you're beating yourself up and torturing yourself, and that, that's our that's our kind of ordinary, you know, judgmental mind. But I want to offer this alternative view of the pain that we experience in meditation, because with that with that understanding, we can be encouraged, we can be inspired, we can bear with. Knowing that it's a it's a beautiful thing, it's a it's a beneficial way of releasing the grip of the mind that causes suffering. So taking refuge in the Buddha is no simple thing, is it? Yeah? We take refuge in the person who did this fantastic thing. We take refuge in the potential we have within our own heart, not yet realized, but aspiring. And we take refuge in the compassion of the Buddha and have compassion for ourselves. So we can we can mumble jumble through this all Buddha Saranga Chami three times and it can be totally meaningless to you. Or you can remember. This is what you're doing. You're taking refuge in this potential within yourself, taking refuge in the, this person that showed us the way, taking refuge in the compassion of the Buddha and the compassion for yourself. So when we take refuge each day, make it a practice of reflecting on what it means to take refuge. Not just mumbo-jumbo ritual. If it's a mumbo-jumbo ritual, don't do it. It's useless. It just puts you to sleep. But you can use it as a reflective awakening. Then, secondly, we take refuge in the Dhamma. The Dhamma has also several meanings it's important to understand. Uh, Like I said, you know, we take refuge in TV, uh, Twitter. No, nobody takes refuge in Twitter anymore. Uh, YouTube, maybe, whatever. So we take refuge in all kinds of things for distraction, for for guidance, you know. We go through the checkout line at the grocery store and there's all kinds of, you know, people offering you advice on those magazines and newspapers and stuff like that. 
Would you take refuge in what they have to say? We do, don't we? <laughs> we take refuge in Oprah, we take refuge in Obama, we take refuge in all kinds of commentaries and spinmeisters. Well, the Dharma is another opportunity. If you hear the Dharma, you might want to take refuge in the Dharma. The Dharma is what the Buddha taught. Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught the Dharma. The Dharma is the way things are. The way things are. This is the way it is. So you point to, this is the way it is. That's the Dharma. And so the Buddha's teachings is the Dharma. So not only is the way it is, the Dharma, but the Buddha's teachings is the Dharma. So when we take refuge in the Dharma, what is it that we're actually taking refuge in? Well, as much as I can offer you instructions, guidance, explanations, answers to your questions, hopefully I'll be representing the teachings of the Buddha as best as, as I know them huh, for myself. So hopefully you can take refuge uh, in that. You might you might express that you might feel some doubt, you might be hesitant, you might think that's counterintuitive and that's understandable. But when you take refuge in Dhamma, again it's an aspiration. I aspire to be able to hear the teachings of the Buddha as a place of refuge, pointing to a place of refuge. Boom. Okay. Well I don't know yet whether all the teachings of the Buddha really are that good. But I'm aspiring to do that. So that's what we're doing when we're taking refuge in the Dharma. We're acknowledging our aspiration to hear the teachings that point to the truth, that point to the way things are, as guidance to a refuge, a, a refuge, a refuge way of understanding things. <clears throat> So what that means is when we when we take refuge in the Dharma, when we take refuge in the way things are, well, you know, we've been sitting here for uh, an hour and twenty minutes. You know? So now you're having some experience in the body. Right? You know, the body feels like this and the mind feels like that, and you're a little tired and you had to drive all day to get here and you're kinda of like bored, maybe we're ready to go to sleep and maybe you gotta go to the bathroom, you know. <coughs> Everything you experience is the Dharma. It's the way it is. Can you take a refuge in that? I cannot. It's like it's too boring. It's too boring. It's too, too achy, and my mind is too restless. And I forgot to make a phone call, and you know, all kinds of things go through our mind that don't let us find a sense of safety and ease in the present experience. So every moment's experience is a Dharma. It's the way it is. So taking refuge in the Dhamma means while I'm aspiring to learn how to feel safe and at ease in every moment's experience. Not there yet. <laughs> but So it's an aspiration. Taking refuge is an aspiration. We're not saying, as a matter of fact, I take refuge in the Dhamma. Really? Well, some Dhammas some experiences I can feel safe, at ease, allowing, willing to be there. There's a lot of experience that kind of like, <laughs> I'd rather not. Right? 
So taking refuge is, is, is really an articulation of our aspiration rather than an acknowledgement of a, uh, a done deal, a known fact. Yeah. So in some ways, this is a practice, isn't it? It's like, well, I'm aspiring. I'm reminding myself, I am aspiring to be able to feel safe with everything I experience. Luckily, you won't have to read any news for a week. <laughs> so maybe you will be able to feel a little safer by the end of the week. Okay? I don't want to, I don't want the Buddha's teaching to be far, far away from the reality of our life. It really is pointing to this experience that you have, moment to moment, every day of your life. It's not about escaping, avoiding, getting rid of, any any of it. It's about waking up to it. Waking up to how you relate to it, whether it causes you suffering or not. How to live with it in a way that you feel safe. That takes some work. So taking refuge in the Dharma is taking refuge in the way it is, taking refuge in the teachings of the Buddha, which is the Dharma, taking refuge in this moment's experience. That's an aspiration, not a, not a done deal. Okay? And the third refuge is taking refuge in the Sangha. The Sangha is a community of practitioners. Again, it's no simple thing. Sangha has several different sangha. There's several different meanings. Sangha, the word sangha, points to several different communities. Actually, here on this retreat, we are a sangha. There's 44 or 45 of us, and there's another half dozen, six or eight staff. So there's a sangha here. There's a community of practitioners, people that are all understanding, supporting, practicing awareness in this way. And while you may not know each other too much and, and haven't uh, had the experience to verify it for yourself, by the middle of the retreat, certainly by the end of the retreat, you'll feel a lot more like a community. And you will understand more about each other's commitment to the practice, to awakening. You'll hear each other's conversations and answering question, uh, asking questions, uh, talking about your practice, and you realize how much alike we are in our challenge to understand the Dharma, to practice the Dharma, to realize the Dharma. And we grow in uh, connection just by sharing our life with one another. This is a Sangha. But I will be conveying and sharing the teachings that I've heard from a larger Sangha, uh, the monastics that I have practiced with and other teachers that I've practiced with and bringing them and their teachings and their experience and their faith and their energy and their compassion into the room, into our practice too. So our Sangha actually grows to include all the teachers that you've had. All of the teachers that have brought the, the teachings of the Buddha to us over the last 2,500 years. 
That's a lot of people. <laughs> That's a lot of commentary. That's a lot of commitment. We, we are part of a huge community that's supporting our awakening. When I was a monk in Burma, I was in a monastery where in the morning they'd ring the bell for breakfast or they'd ring the gong for breakfast. And breakfast was up a hill and around a corner, around a, a big meditation hall up there. And I would get in the line of monks, the eldest monks going first, those who've been a monk the longest, you know, 50 years, 60 years, they're old, 70 years old, 80 years old. And uh, they go first, and then those who had been a monk for 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, they would go, they would go, they would go in front of me. And then when they called those monks who'd been a monk for two years, then I could go. And I would get in the line, and I'd start going up the hill to the dining room, and I'd look ahead, and I'd see this long line of monks just going up the hill, around the corner, out of sight. And I would think, somewhere up there at the head of the line is the Buddha. 2,500 years ago. That line of monks hasn't stopped for more than 2,500 years. And the Buddha said, this is what I see, this is how I understand suffering and the end of suffering, and this is how to realize it for yourself. And the person next to him said, huh, okay, heard, practiced, realized, and said to the next person in the line, this is how I see it. If you see it this way, you too can stop suffering. And that teaching has been handed down from the Buddha through monks and through nuns, and through lay people to come to us. Unbroken chains. That's a big community. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people every day doing this practice. We're not alone. We might be 45 of us, 50 of us here. You might think that, you know, we're alone, you're alone. You're not alone. You're never alone when you practice. Tens of thousands of people are practicing with you. I have now, now I have this uh, insight timer. You have this insight timer on your phone? You know, press the thing. You know, you do your 45 minutes. It, it ends and you look at the thing and says, you have just meditated with 7,843 people. <laughs> that means that, that number of people were using that app at that time. There's a lot of people that don't even have a phone, let alone an app. <laughs> and they're doing the same thing. So you just multiply it by 100 or so, and you're probably more accurate. A lot of people, right? Well, how can't we feel like, okay, I'm, I'm in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing, if there's another 100,000 people doing the same thing with me? It's a great support. It's a great sense of refuge, a great sense of oh, I, I can feel safe in this group I can feel at ease I can feel like what I'm doing is worthwhile and appreciated and if it's beneficial for them it's beneficial for me there will be times though you'll be in this hall, you'll be sitting 
and your eyes will be closed and you won't remember any of those people. You'll be all alone with your suffering and your mind is going not safe. That's when you want to remember I take refuge in the Sangha. If you can't do the practice for yourself, because it's so hard sometimes, it's hard, you know, do it for everybody else. Let that be your motivation. Like the Buddha, you know, I can't bear this stuff. But for you, I'll bear it. If it's going to help support you, you look around and there's other people sitting there. They're all meditating to support you. When you get to the place where you sit, get get up, I gotta get out of here. Yeah. And you see, oh, everybody else is just sitting quietly like a little Buddha. Okay, I guess I will too. In that way, we support each other. Just having a community. That's what it means to take refuge in the Sangha. Feel supported by each other. And to offer support to each other. And it's not just those that you see, but it's 2,500 years of support. But there'll be times when you forget. That's why we take refuge. That's why we acknowledge our aspiration to be able to feel the support. To be able to acknowledge it. It's not always going to be there. But if we practice and when we chant in the mornings, if you remember, well, this is what I'm doing. I'm aspiring to remember. Yes. There's a lot of support for what we're doing. So this is what it means to pay homage to the Buddha, to take refuge in the Buddha, to take refuge in the Dhamma, to take refuge in the Sangha. And you can see how how full the reflection is, even though you just mumble jumble for 30 seconds. Okay? But if you make it a practice and you reflect in this way, it'll be a great support for you as you practice.